0: Welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming to our monthly series of issues in geriatric health, clinical, and nursing insights. This program is sponsored by our grant Advancing Competency for Geriatric Care in Rural Northern New England. We call it ACGC for short. Um, All our activities are funded by HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. Um, And this funding allows us to offer programs like these at no charge. So um, our work and our goals are to enhance the care of older adults by offering education programs targeted to nursing staff um, that emphasize evidence-based best practices for geriatric care. Um, so part of our um, funding is dependent on you helping us by providing some information about yourself and completing an evaluation. So you'll see those forms if you could just leave those with us before you leave for the day. Um, you will receive one contact hour for this program as long as you attend 80%. Um, and. There is also a forum describing how to access your transcript online um, through the Center for Continuing Education. Um, I do also need to say aloud that neither our speakers or any member of our planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. And any product, service, or company being discussed or displayed with this activity does not imply that there is a real or implied endorsement by the AMCC or Medical um, Center. So if you have cell phones or pagers, if you could please silence them now. And for those of you joining us from a remote site, if you could please make sure you're on mute unless you want to ask a question or make a comment. And also, if you're um, interested, so we offer this series every month. Right now we're doing a series called Choosing Wisely, based on some guidelines put out by the American Geriatrics Society. We have postcards on the table that have our schedule for the year. You will see that there was a swap between this month and next month. So today we have Brenda Jordan. She's a nurse practitioner from um, Kendall, the retirement community affiliated with Dart & Pitchcock in Hanover. Um, and she's also one of the project directors for the ACGC grant. And then next month, we'll have Joanne um, Sandberg-Cook speaking about feeding tubes in patients with advanced dementia, so please join us if you can. Our website is on the back of the postcard, which is where you can go to check to see where each program will be held, because the location is not the same each month. So thank
1: so you as I t- found out today. <laughs> That's
0: right, it's fun Brenda discovered. So thank you for joining us, and welcome, Brenda.
1: Thank you. It's going to take me a minute here to get my computer booted up. um, But I'm going to start talking about what we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm going to start out by introducing the Choose Wisely program was actually a program that was developed um, by the American Board of Internal Medicine about three years ago. Um, They determined that there were um, many Evaluation procedures and many treatments that are available for people to utilize in this country. And some are valuable and some are not. And there's uh, beginning to be good evidence accumulated about things that are worthwhile doing and things that are not worthwhile doing. So they really challenged many, 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 many healthcare providers. Uh, various professional societies to, uh, amongst themselves, um, develop five recommendations, um, choose wisely recommendations, that are basically uh, things that physicians and patients should discuss. Um, So it started with the Board of Internal Medicine. And if my computer ever gets going, I'll show you that website. Um, and it, um, they now have something like 60 professional partners in this endeavor, um, and the American Geriatric Society is only one of those partners presently. Um, the um, each organization, and you know, it's been the American Heart Association, the uh, what the Oncology Society, no matter what the professional organization is that is partnering with the American Board of Internal Medicine, they are each choosing to um, develop their own choose Wiselys. So we decided it would be very appropriate to, as part of this series, present the American Geriatric Society recommendations. So There is a, um, if you Google Choose Wisely, the first uh, selection you're liable to get is the ABIM website, which is the American Board of Internal Medicine. And then you'll also get many other organizations. The Choose Wisely will pop up. And if you go to the American Geriatric Society um, uh, page, you also can find Choose Wisely. And like I said, once I get in here, I'm going to show you both of those. Um, websites. Um, I am cho- talking about the Choose Wisely recommendation number two today, and I um, I volunteered to do this because this is one that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, and the Choose Wisely number two recommendation has to do with patients and probably family members more than. Um, Doctors and probably more family members than patients having conversations about not using antipsychotic medications as the first treatment for behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. In other words, if a patient is experiencing behavioral and psychological symptoms, and we will define a little more clearly what those are, that antipsychotics should not be the first choice. And the reason they recommend that is that um, there is a good amount of evidence that says it doesn't work. And not only does it not work, but it has a huge potential to cause harm to patients up to and including death and stroke. So there's a pretty compelling reason not to do it if it's not working. so let me open up this PowerPoint now that we've finally gotten to my desktop. And then we'll um, I'll take you back to those websites. So I'm going to talk more specifically about the recommendation and how it came to be, really discuss the evidence behind it, uh, talk a little bit about in um, the research that's done the few symptoms they have found that respond to selected antipsychotic medicine. And then talk a little bit about if you don't have antipsychotics in your repertoire, or they should not be your first choice, what do you do? Because there's also been some very good research to discuss what options are available to And it's usually nursing staff who are in the first line who are confronted by these symptoms. So what we're going to do by the end of this session is discuss the evidence base that supports this recommendation from AGS. And really describe non-pharmacologic approaches to behavioral and psychological symptoms that are part of the University of Iowa IADP ADAPT program, which is a very, vigorous wonderful program. So here is the recommendation don't use antipsychotics as the first choice to treat behavioral symptoms behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. So one of the things is you have to make sure you know whether you're dealing with a person who has dementia or not which sometimes is a critical decision point. Um, And sometimes in a setting when you're in That may not be entirely clear when you first come upon a patient who's having behavioral symptoms. I think um, there are often families don't know. Patients aren't going to tell you themselves. Um, And if they're coming from, if they're actually institutionalized, there's a pretty reasonable chance that they do have dementia. But if they just come in from home, it's sometimes much harder to tease out whether they have underlying dementia. So behavioral and psychological symptoms are very prevalent in moderate to severe dementia. And people with moderate dementia are still walking around kind of looking almost normal, um, often having trouble communicating, often having trouble um, carrying out activities of daily living, but often living at home with family members or in an institution (coughs) and assisted living being supported by nursing staff. Behavioral and psychological symptoms are disruptive and they are challenging. There is just no two ways about it. Um, and they frequently, frequently include aggressiveness and resistance to care, which is where we kind of get engaged in this all the time. Um, because we have something we want a patient to do. They don't understand what we want. And their response to that is to resist it and to often be aggressive in in response to what they perceive as our aggressiveness, which is what I think we have to remember, is their perceiving aggressiveness on our part. Um, For a very long time, atypical antipsychotics were prescribed to patients with Alzheimer's disease. But we know really now they provide very limited benefit and can really seriously increase the risk of harm. Uh, Like I said, stroke and premature death Um, And some of the premature death is people get so sedated on the antipsychotics they can't eat and drink anymore. They can't take nourishment and they die. And um, I've seen this happen more than once. Um, So it's not just they have a heart attack or a stroke, but they bring about consequences which end people's lives. So they can't be taken um, lightly. The other thing is, every time an atypical antipsychotic is prescribed for a patient with dementia, it is an off label use of a medication. Now, one of the things I understand as a nurse practitioner, I'm not supposed to prescribe things that are off label uses of drugs. So just that piece becomes a problem for me, um, to say nothing of the other harm. Um, So the recommendation to avoid antipsychotics is based on evidence from quite a number of randomized control um, research trials. (coughs) Finding these medications have generally not been effective. And I'm going to review some of the research. Most of the lack of effectiveness is It doesn't really change the target behavior. Nothing is done to change the target behavior. All you're doing is basically sedating a person. So starting in 2006, there was a 42-site, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial with 421 patients with Alzheimer's disease who had psychosis, aggression, or agitation. They were given olanzapine, Seroquel, I'm going to call it because I can never say that. So we're going to call it Seroquel. And Respiridone or a placebo. Um, They were followed for 36 weeks. There was no difference among the treatments in the time to discontinuation, the reason for discontinuation, the lack of efficacy, or in the adverse events or improvements. So they gave them those drugs and guess what? No difference amongst anybody. So that's pretty telling to start with. The potential for adverse effects, however, um, was significant um, and was really offset by the minimal advantage of these drugs. I mean, often people would develop Parkinsonian symptoms. They would become very sedated. They would have even more difficulty managing activities of daily living. And yet they weren't seeing real, really any effective change in the behavior. Um, so they really felt, as part of this study, that the potential for bad effect clearly outweighed any good that might have been there. And they really didn't find anything that was very good. Another study that was done in 2011 was a systematic review of all of the relevant studies published in English from six databases. So in other words, they looked at all of the research they could find about antipsychotics. Um, and they actually found 14 placebo-controlled trials <coughs> with elderly patients with dementia, again, including symptoms such as psychosis, you know, things like hallucinating, having delusions, <coughs> usually delusions that people are trying to hurt them, Um, mood alterations, and aggressiveness. The results included um, that for the generalized anxiety disorder may be part of this, Seroquel may have been associated with a 26% greater likelihood of response than placebo. But other than that one small finding, nothing, no effect really at all so again these are the few um, conclusions out of this big review of all these studies is that if a person has obsessive compulsive disorder maybe Respiradone would help them Um, in compared to placebo um, adverse events including risk of death stroke and extrapyramidal symptoms were significant. And there was a small but statistically significant benefit observed for things like a um, olanzapine, and respiridone. But the adverse effects were very common and often um, more overwhelming than the good effect. So the current thought about use of atypical antipsychotics is they should be limited to cases where all non-pharmacologic measures have have failed. In other words, we should try all of the behavioral management things we can try. And when everything has failed and we still have a person who poses risk to themselves and others, and that's where they draw the line is when there's risk to themselves or others then it may be appropriate to use atypical antipsychotics because possibly sedation is logical. Um, I often have recounted a story of a gentleman who I took care of who um, we came to find out after he died had a combination of both Alzheimer's disease and Lewy body dementia. And he he was 76. He was still relatively young. He'd been a family physician in Maine He'd been a brilliant man, a kind man. Um, And as he deteriorated with both um, the Lewy body and the Alzheimer's, he became very paranoid. (coughs) He had visual hallucinations. The visual hallucinations were first of children that he thought he had to care for. And that really didn't bother him, so we really just kind of ignored that. Um, And he was living with his wife, and his wife did a beautiful job of managing this. But then when he began to feel that people were trying to break in and hurt the children, bad things started to happen. There were two nights he barricaded he and his wife in the bathroom, and she was terrified. At that point, we brought him into our health center, and we really tried to manage him in our secure uh, dementia unit. But he continued to have uh, auditory, auditory and visual hallucinations. Um, continued to be very paranoid. And often would become very aggressive, not with us, but with something he perceived to be threatening. Um, and this one particular day, he became, uh, he became very concerned that there were Chinese going to break into our health center and hurt everybody. So he woke up in the morning, and he was swinging a portable radio and a hand mirror at everybody and everything. Um, so the staff sequestered the other patients and and I went down and he recognized me still Um, and he told me that the Chinese were trying to hurt everybody and he was trying to protect everybody so um, I often say this is probably the craziest thing I ever did in my life but I went with him into the garden and we banged the bushes for the Chinese with the radio in the mirror and looked for the Chinese until he got exhausted And then when he got tired, I said, why don't you go back in and sit down? I'll take over. I'll protect everybody. So he went inside and sat down. And then he became willing to let me take over, but only if I wrote out an affidavit and had it witnessed by two people. And then he decided he was off duty. Um, We could not really manage him in our environment. He was hospitalized on a geropsych unit. He was treated with antipsychotic medicines until he became so Parkinson uh, that he couldn't walk, he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink, um, and his family elected to bring him back to our health center and provide palliative care and let him let him die, and he did. Um, Did you have to keep him sedated, almost on the
2: sedated side, that whole
1: time? We we had him on some meds. We tried to lighten the meds up a couple of times to see if he could resume walking, resume eating. Mm-hmm. He really never got back to it. He never was quite as, um, he was never as aggressive. I think yeah. he'd lost the physical ability to be that way. Yeah. But he was still very delusional and he was still hallucinating. So we were completely unable to control his symptoms with um, antipsychotics. And it did lead to the end of his life. And I think this is the kind of tragedy we see with these illnesses. Um, And that the use of antipsychotics being reserved until the very late stages of something like this is really the only way that maybe it's even halfway feasible. And even then, it doesn't have good outcomes. you know, as hard as we can, we try to identify and address the cause of the behavior change, and try to do what we can to make the drug treatment unnecessary. For a short while, me taking care of the Chinese took care of that. However, you know, it didn't last for long, and you know, then the next crisis came along. We did find one of the things he and his wife had washed mash the night before, and he'd been very agitated after watching a television show. So we always thought if we had been able to control his exposure, to um, and it was, um, you know, it was on what is it TNT or something that plays all those old shows. <coughs> we became very more conscious of being careful about what we provide for people to watch in our dementia unit because that may well have precipitated a lot of this. So. Really identifying triggers and causes and trying to avoid situations is what we want to do. So I want to talk a little bit about the University of Iowa and their, um, their very systematic approach to non-pharmacologic uh, intervention. Um, it's a wonderful resource. I actually want to try to go there um, right now. So let me do that. Um, I am going to take a minute, and um, this is the the original Choose Wisely website of the uh, American Board of Internal Medicine. Um, It talks about the program. It lists all the partners. There are uh, grantees who have grants and are doing research to really um, identify um, maybe more choose wisely discussions that physicians and um, patients should be having. Here is the American Geriatric Society Choose Wisely webpage. Um, this is uh, these are the recommendations that. The AGS has made. Um, as you can see, the first one has to do about percutaneous feeding tubes, and that's what um, Joanna is going to talk about next month. Um, my discussion is about antipsychotic use. There is another one about avoiding um, tight control of diabetes in older adults, um, and there's some very compelling information about that. I see Mary. Raising her eyebrows and <laughs> very aware of that. And then, problems, yes, that is. And then, about not using benzodiazepines and other sedative hypnotics uh, for older adults who are having sleep problems. And finally, um, limiting the use of antimicrobials in treating bacteria in older adults, which is a really significant issue. So, I, I think these are five excellent topics to discuss because there's something that any of us who are dealing with older patients are dealing with all the time. And I think it really makes us kind of rethink what we do, which is the purpose of these programs. I'm going to close this up and um, try to get to the IADP program because I want to show you some of these. I was going to get here early and get this all done before you got here. With this to say, didn't work. So the um, this program has been developed by the Geriatric Education Center at the University of Iowa. The Geriatric Education Center actually has a um, uh, grant from HERSA, very similar to the one we have. They've had a grant for a number of years, and actually the the, uh, this program was, the grant was written by a pharmacist. The original grant was w- written by a pharmacist in collaboration with uh, a nurse clinician. And um, because he really felt that this the, the thought about um, using antipsychotics needed to change. So I'm going to show you a couple of the um, guides that are available at this website. Um, As you see, if you put in IA ADAPT, you go right to the University of Iowa website. And I'm going to start with an algorithm. Uh, Pardon me while I put my information in here. I have signed up for this website, and anybody can. What you do is, as a nurse or a nurse practitioner, you Go in, it asks you a whole bunch of demographic questions about who you are, and then it gives you unlimited access to this website. So I would encourage you to register, get on the website, and. Oh, gosh, tell me I forgot one. <laughs> I don't think I did. But let's try that. I could try mine too. OK. I thought I did it off the other one, but here we go. So many of these come in a pocket guide form, so they can be laminated, and you can carry, you know, nurses can carry them around with them, um, which I think is just the most spectacular thing ever. So that you know when we we're confronted with a catastrophe, and maybe I better see if you can get on, Kelly. I've been on vacation I probably forgot all my passwords. Ah. You keep trying them. You eventually, you know, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn. So this is the algorithm for treating behavioral and psychological symptoms, and as you can see, it starts with identifying the reason the problem is happening. Contributing factors, and I love how they group this because they talk about unmet physical needs—you know, pain, infection, dehydration, constipation, incontinence. Unmet psychological needs—you know, loneliness, boredom. Mm -hmm. Demented people, you know, have these—they—they get apprehensive, they don't have enjoyable activities, they lose intimacy with people. They don't have socialization to connect them. Environmental causes. You know, is it too bright? Is it too dark? Is it too noisy? Is a particular person, the way they're approaching them, really annoying them? Um, Institutional routines. You know, there's nothing worse than our institutional routines to make people feel like they have no idea what's going on. Um, We know what's going on, but they don't know what's going on. And then a lack of cues and prompts. You know They've become accustomed to certain things, meaning certain things, and suddenly those are gone, and they don't know what to do anymore. And then psychiatric causes. Are they depressed? Are they anxious? Are they delirious? Are they psychotic? Do they have other mental illness in addition to their dementia? We know that de- depression and anxiety are very common in dementia. And in fact, there's a lot of good information sometimes when people have behavioral and psychiatric symptoms that treating them for depression will often make those symptoms resolve, so that the trigger is really the depression. But prior to getting to pharmacologic mechanism, the treatments, <coughs> then you move down to step two, which is select and apply non-drug interventions. And here are all the things you can try. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: All the things you can try. And I believe these are, um, are these in the handout for for today? Mm -hmm. I think the algorithm is in there and there's a couple of others. The the link
2: for
1: it Mm -hmm. is. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is the algorithm. And then we're going to move over to one of the, um, then I'll move over to one. Oh, and it booted me out again. Well, at least I know how to get back in now. hmm There we go. Now, uh, two, 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 pocket guides. Overview of evidence-based approaches. non-drug management. We'll do non-drug management next. This one is in your packet. Um, non-drug management, again, um, goes through the assessment step and then the applying the interventions. It's in a little different format this time. Um, Focus on one behavior at a time. Look at triggers. Eliminate and reduce things that may be triggering. um, Adjust your approach to the person. Do what you can to change the environment. um, Consider the abilities, preferences, and resources of the person. A person-centered approach. Often we find when we really know people well, And their families are able to give us a lot of information about kind of who they are and what makes them tick. When things start to happen, we can change our approach based on kind of who they are. So, again, this person centered um, care has become a huge piece in caring for people with dementia. Um, And then, really, monitoring the interventions that work and sharing them with others so we can use them. Um, We have some people that. When they get anxious or agitated, sometimes just getting them to sing with you. Walk down the hall singing with you. Or they get anxious and agitated if you offer to take them for a walk and just change the scenery and start talking about anything um, will help. So this is the uh, non-drug. I'm living in a password hell today. (laughs) Clearly. All right. This is my punishment. I should never go on vacation ever again. Uh, No, that's not it. No, that's not it. (laughs) I agree. Okay. So then the other um, handout you have is Caring for People with Dementia, uh, Problem Behavior, Step-by-Step Evidence-Based Approach. which I think is this, one. yes. And again, this is another pocket guide that can um, these can be purchased from the ADAP people, or you know you can put them, make them up on colored paper, and make them like this and laminate them, and people can carry them around. And again, it's just you know thinking points to think about um, common causes of physical pain. You know, psychological, environmental, makes you tick down through all the things that could be going on. And then the different types of assessments you may want to do. I can't tell you how many people I've seen completely and totally agitated and acting out because they're constipated. You resolve the problem and they're like literally a new person. and of course, always thinking about, does the behavior really pose a risk to anybody else? Or is it just you know, upsetting <coughs> to them and maybe upsetting to people around them, but really no harm is going to come? So this is an incredibly helpful um, resource to have available. Um, like I said, I would encourage everybody to sign up, get online, um, because if you remember your password, you can always get back on and access is really any place you are. Um, and take the time to you know walk through with yourself again what it is you need to remember. So in addition to talking about not using drugs, I think we have to have something that we hand to people um, to say, these are the things you can do instead. And I think this. Um, Geriatric Education Center has provided us with an incredible resource this way.
3: Brenda, would you um, comment on the struggle that we run into, particularly in the acute care setting, when people with dementia have been sent here mm-hmm. or whatever physical problem they have, and now they're in this unfamiliar environment and they're sick, and it's a big disaster? And so, in a crisis, we end up having to sedate them for mm-hmm. their own to not take out a tube that we question whether should it be. In whatever. So, um, I mean, I know in Kendall you have a very good way of talking people through advanced care planning. Yes, we do. And I, I wonder, you know, the nurses are on the cotton and that they're trying to manage this behavior at the bedside when they realize mm-hmm. the patient should have never been sent here to begin with. Yeah. And do you want to speak to sort of that dilemma that care facilities run into in terms of sort of um, promoting what's the optimal good for these patients?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and I know, Peggy, you kind of asked me this question because you know how I feel about it. Um, I feel there are very, there are really never times people with dementia need to end up in an acute care hospital. Not even with broken bones. I mean, we off, we will have people who fracture hips, and families will elect not to send them to the hospital. And we keep them, and we keep them comfortable, and they usually brings about the end of their life. But it's a kind, kinder and gentler end to their life than what would happen if they came to the hospital? Unfortunately, I think there is not always um, a dialogue, and it's usually, I, you know, one of the reasons I feel people should know when they may have dementia is because when they still have their wits about them, they can sit there and tell you what they want, and often that's what happens: is we have people who begin to have problems, they sit there and they tell us very clearly what they want. They have an advanced directive. They name a family member who they know will do the right thing. And that family member does the right thing. The family member does not opt to treat them for infections, does not send them to the um, opt for treatment in the hospital if they have heart failure, doesn't doesn't opt for the things that make people end up coming through the door. So the the I mean the critical piece is once the people are in the door, mm-hmm. what happens to them from there. It's really pretty awfully predictable. Um, and I think you know the best case scenario is a lot of effort at working to get them out the door again. You know, really getting durable powers of attorney if they have them to rethink the decision. Um, or you know finding somebody who's willing to be a decision maker and make appropriate decisions and get them back to where they can receive whatever type of, usually comfort care is what they need. They don't need to be in an acute care hospital. Because you're right, all that ends up happening to them is there's all this agitation that happens because they're completely confronted with things they don't understand. And they're they're only, you know, all of us have that fight and flight in us. And when we're challenged and we don't have the capacity to really think anymore, we fight. And that's what happens. And when people fight, they get given the antipsychotics, and nothing ever good came of that. So, my own feeling is, if um, we did a better job, those of us who are on the outside, keeping people from ending up in the hospital, it would be a much saner situation. (coughs) But (coughs) it's difficult. We just had. we just had a woman whose husband very demented, and she really and he had had um, aspiration and aspiration pneumonia. I don't know how many times, and we had talked to her on many occasions about the level of his aspiration, how um, really going to the hospital for treatment wasn't appropriate anymore, um, and she just she had him as a full code. She wanted to done um, we felt completely ineffective in trying to communicate with this woman. Well, last week he had a major event at home, and she called us, and I don't know what happened, but I think some of those conversations finally sunk in because she called us up and she said, "Oh, it's terrible. this is what's going on. Can you please start hospice care? We almost fell over. Mm-hmm we almost fell over because this woman had been so adamant. It had to be on her own time? Yeah, it had to be on her own time. She had to get there. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, actually I was talking to her this morning and she looked at me and said, you know, it struck me that day Mm -hmm. that he was dying and I needed to let him go. Mm -hmm. So, now, hopefully some of that happened because seeds were planted, but Again, I think many people in acute care end up with the mess that doesn't take get taken care of appropriately on the front end. So, And then you're just stuck. Yeah. So that's all I have to say.
3: I have one other question. So I just read about um, a study that looked at the use of a 30 milligram dose. It was rather high of Selexa. Um, for agitation, not for depression, but for agitation in dementia patients. It's a fairly recent I, I think it's from University of Rochester. Maybe. Um, and so what was interesting was it actually worked better than some of the other medications. Uh, of course, the problem is because of that dose, they did have a widened QTC. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, although strangely, they're... Um, Measurement was the mini mental status exam, was what they were using, but they actually lost points, cognitive points, with the use of the medication. But the agitation was taken care of. So what are you reading about, not for depression, but just for agitation, about antidepressants?
1: So I'll tell you, not what I'm reading, but what our experience has been over the last three years. We have had some people who have been very aggressive, very agitated. We have used as little as 10 milligrams of Selexa, and just had miraculous change where people just, there was this one gentleman who, um, he was living at home with his wife and he became so paranoid and agitated and physically aggressive toward her. We, I mean, we didn't think we were gonna be able to manage him in our environment. We were thinking he was gonna end up needing to be hospitalized psychiatrically. We started him on um, 10 of Selexa, got a little response, took him up to 20 the next week. In two weeks, his symptoms were gone. He was like calm again. Mm-hmm. He wasn't paranoid. He wasn't fighting with anybody. He uh, It was astounding. So very, very small doses of antidepressant. Um, and we've seen some pretty amazing changes. That and the other thing <coughs> that we've been using when we have people who have sleep problems mm-hmm. and also have agitation, as we've been using Trazodone. Mm-hmm. And that's been working enormously well. And it does not have the extrapyramidal side effects. It doesn't have the black box warning of stroke and sudden death. And we have, again, in very agitated people who were afraid they're going to hurt other people, and sometimes have, we've had very good luck with Trazodone. Um, you know, 50 of trazodone, four times a day, PRN, and you know, we actually, I, we actually, one gentleman, <coughs> he was on 100 of trazodone, four times a day, mm-hmm. but it completely settled him down. I mean, he was running around, pushing and shoving, and and pushing and shoving other patients, which mm-hmm. was really pretty scary, mm-hmm. and um, that mu- amount of trazodone, he wasn't sleeping. Mm-hmm. He wasn't sedated. He was just down. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, Bob Santulli, who's been our geriatric psychiatrist for a million years, was the person who suggested this based on some relatively new evidence about trazodone and antidepressants, and it's worked. I mean, we haven't had to use an antipsychotic in a long, long time. Um so I, have a question. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I used to use sort of answered it in one of your stories, but so when a patient's have an auditory or visual hallucinations, as long as they're not hurting somebody or themselves, do you recommend just going along with them?
1: Just jump? leaving it alone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and even sometimes, you know, exploring it with Well that's
2: what I'm saying, really agreeing with them. Like yeah. when they say, you know, oh I see the cat over there,
1: you know, in the Well tell me country, what the cat
2: looks like. Yeah.
1: Um, Visual hallucinations are usually a very bad prognosticator. Um, when people have visual hallucinations, it's usually very indicative of incredible neurodegenerative damage. Um, so when people are having visual hallucinations, ugh, never a good thing. Um, but again, if it's not upsetting to them, we usually we don't get upset. Right. Um, and then my other I think one. that
3: the one caveat I always state on that is if, if the person has a delirium on top of the yeah. dementia and there's a chance that this is related to the delirium and is therefore a temporary issue, I just get worried about people sort of, sometimes people will do is agree with the patient and go along with it and sort of you know play up to it. And my worry is if, if there's a chance that the delirium can get better and then they start questioning whether they're really seeing or hearing things but you're continuing to go along with it, yeah. I think that can be confusing. But I think. Steady state.
1: Well, I, let's put steady. it this way: we don't medicate them right. for it if right. they're right. not upset about right. it.
3: You can right. distract them. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. distracting is actually better yeah. than talking about it because sometimes the talking about it engenders this desire to do something about it.
1: Mm-hmm. 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 But again, a lot of the times when we have people with visual hallucinations, it's not about delirium; it's just about their primary Yeah, and in the hospital setting, the yeah. delirium is
2: obviously one yeah of the person, that's so much
1: that's more, more of the fond. issue. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. and then one other. Thing. Opinion. So when I'm working with my staff about and we we have a dementia a dementia patient and we're trying to do all the non-pharmacological um, options first, I have to say that I in my past I've had a lot of uh, child care, I've been in early childhood, um, dealt with many many two to four year olds, and and is it disrespectful for me to say to not to the patient obviously. But when I'm teaching my nurses, you know, say, if you're a mom and you have had, you've, uh, you've raised a two to a four year old, you know, you're not, you really, in some of these dementia patients, that's literally how you have to handle them. And I always feel a little, I always feel a little like, is this really fair and disrespectful to say to them? You know, if, if you, would you let your two year old or your four year old lay in a soaking wet bed? Or um, you know, if your two-year-old is arguing with you about something,
1: you always try to change the subject. So it's really mm-hmm. that. But I don't. Well, it's I think I think it's more germane to how you interact with people, no matter what the issue is. Yeah. You know, yeah, you kind exactly. of have to meet people where they are, and you know, when you're meeting children where they are, you do a certain set of things. When you're trying to Meet people with both delirium and dementia where they are. You do what you need to do. Um, You think about, you know, kind of what it's really all about, and that's where you go. Yeah. Um, And I think that's appropriate. And that's, you know, doesn't matter whether you're dealing with a small child, a teenager, uh, or or somebody with dementia who's convinced that what they believe is absolutely the truth. I feel for people who um, are paranoid and are terrified. I mean, that's horrible. And usually there is no convincing them um, that they're not being. All you can do is hope you can change. You can either change the subject, maybe. The other thing I found is very helpful is they get worn out. This is exhausting to be this frightened. So often, if you just kind of hang in there with them for a period of time, they become completely exhausted. Sit down, and then you know you have a chance. Um, you can offer them something to drink, something to eat, you know, and they can stop for a couple minutes because they're too tired to go on. Mm-hmm. So much like children as well. Right. Exactly. So
3: I yeah, I think you do
1: what you can to communicate to staff.
3: And I think that the point is, Lori, that it's
1: understanding
3: is based upon your experience with children. It's not like you're treating the older adult. Right. A child. Exactly. No, you're using the lessons you've learned
2: from dealing with people right. who were maybe not as verbally able to explain their needs. Right, right. Exactly. Absolutely. In that, right, I don't mean exactly. by any means that, we're, that we right. treat them like right. a child. Right, right. But sometimes we talk to them like you would talk to a child, sometimes, depending on the situation.
1: Well, I think Peggy's but, point is a good one. I mean, often when we're dealing with people to, with dementia, they can't tell us what they need. They yes, act yes, it out. So
2: that's exactly my point. We need to look at all those other things. You know, A child, a young child, can't tell us what they need. They can't tell us if they're hungry. They can't tell us that they're wet. So that's, that's my point. So yeah. think about that. And we need to really think about that, because a, a lot of people Caregivers, um, you know, think, well, this is a full grown adult, so why would I think about these other things? Because this is an adult; they should be able to tell them. So, well, it's just I think that your education. point about I think your point about the person who has
3: dementia and is lying in the wet bed and doesn't and doesn't keep refusing for you to change the bed linens, but it's like, well, you know, at what point do they sort of lose the capacity to lie in a wet bed and get sores and right. whatever that's going to right. do? And so, how do you mitigate? problem of going against what they want and doing
2: yes. it in as gently exactly. and as respectfully a way as possible, but
3: yet meet their physical needs. Right. And that's a hard balance. It is out. hard.
1: But yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes changing the game. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Let's get up and have a snack. Exactly. And just change the whole thing that's going on. But it, I mean, it's, it's completely a challenge. Um, it is, I will never say it's simple, um, never. It's uh, one of the things I love most about it, it's, it is that it's so difficult. But
3: mm-hmm. All right. Brendan, the fellow uh, um, who signed the affidavit that you were going go to go take care of the mm-hmm. um, Chinese people. Heard. Did he remember that from day to day? Well,
1: he, was, he basically, after he signed it, he said, I'm going to go outside and sit in the garden, now." Mm-hmm. And he went out there. He ended up getting admitted to the hospital the next day, so oh. of course he didn't remember. Mm-hmm. In fact, he got admitted that afternoon. Um, no, he wouldn't remember it. But that was his need in the moment. That moment.
3: And, and had that fear of the Chinese people gone on for days? I mean, did
1: he woke up with it that one day. Okay. And 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 his wife, in retrospect, said, I bet it's because we watched Mash. Right. The so I
2: find that very interesting too. I never would have thought mm-hmm. that we need to be careful. Though so I've been in a patient's room before, and again, I'm talking probably more delirium, but with a TV show on. and Oh, TVs. We don't yeah. even have.
1: We have them in the dementia unit. We usually don't have them on much. Mm-hmm. CNN and Fox right. News are yeah. the basis yeah, of every right. delirious. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean. It's a stimulation that is noxious. People can't make sense of it when they have dementia. It's just music is fine, Yes. but TV not so much.
3: Yeah. I think sometimes what's helpful. Um, so I think news stations are problematic because it's scary enough for all of us to watch the news. Yeah. Let alone for somebody with you know more thinking problems than we probably have. Uh, but I think sometimes people have things that they really enjoy, like ball games.
1: Yeah. I really noticed
3: people, even with fairly significant delirium or dementia, mm-hmm. will connect with the ball game. Yes. Yeah. Because it's such a, uh, you know, it's a behavioral response that they have done for many, many years, yeah. and they don't really have to pay attention to the same way. Well,
1: actually, on the dementia unit, they had a World Series party. Uh-huh. They watch the World Series yeah, right. games. The other thing they do a lot is watch old old movies, yeah, old musicals, yeah. sound of music. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <coughs> Esther Williams coming out in a bathing suit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Lawrence Well. Yeah, that's right. Lawrence Welk. Saturday yeah. night, six o'clock. Yeah. 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 Right. All yep. all of those things are comforting, but not Fox News and CNN. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: But you would think, I mean, Mash was something of the 60s and 70s, yeah. you would yeah. that would be of their youth. But I can see why that mm-hmm. could be very confusing to somebody who can't see what.
1: Well, enough. and the administrator of our dementia unit, who is a very savvy lady, who I have a lot of respect for, she said oh, my goodness, I'll have to remember to tell them not to put that on. You know, the, and the things you learn the hard way, the things you learn that probably weren't the best idea. So. All right. Thank you. So go forward and do good. I'm going to go back to work.